0: But Matthew is particularly interested to track the kind of response that Jesus got. Matthew is not only interested in Jesus, but he's interested also in tracking the kind of response that the disciples got when they went out to preach. Matthew makes a major point to show that Jesus and the apostles faced rejection. The first 12 chapters of Matthew really chronicle the greatness of Christ, talk about who He is from His birth right on through His ministry. It becomes apparent to anybody that this is the Messiah, the Son of God, God in human flesh, the Savior of the world, uh, the, the Creator, the Lord. And all through those first 12 chapters Jesus is on display I I I love the gospel of Matthew as you know some of you know I preached eight years in Matthew and I've written four volumes of commentary on Matthew I love it because it just presents Jesus Christ on every single page in every single paragraph and you're continually with him through this whole Gospel but one of the things that that culminates uh, in the ministry of Christ is mentioned in chapter 12 and I'll just briefly mention it to you. Verse 24, the Pharisees said this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub the ruler of the demons. That's a very important note because after 12 chapters rehearsing the amazing life and teaching and works of Christ, the Jewish leaders concluded that he was satanic. The ultimate affront and ultimate missing of truth. Here it was God, and they concluded that He did the things He did by the power of Satan. In other words, they concluded the exact opposite of the truth. It's really incredible. You remember what John said? He came unto His own, and His own what? received him not he was in the world the world was made by him and the world knew him not well that's how it was jesus came his mighty deeds and his amazing words were enough evidence to prove that he was god and yet they concluded that he did what he did by the power of satan that's how deep they were in unbelief and so the the rejection of Christ sort of reaches an apex in chapter 12. Then you come to chapter 13, where I want us to look today. And in chapter 13, Jesus calls his disciples together and says, Look, you saw how they treated me. Now you can get ready to expect the same kind of thing. In fact, he said, as you go out, you're going to throw a seed. And some of it's going to hit hard ground. And it's not going to penetrate. And there's not going to be any fruit and uh Satan's going to come along and snatch away whatever truth you happen to lay on the minds of those people. And sometimes you're going to sow it in in rocky soil. And it looks like there's an emotional response, but no real conversion. And sometimes you're going to sow it in weedy ground. And, and the cares of this age and the love of riches are going to choke out whatever truth was put there. And so you're going to have to face the fact that you're going to meet lots of people who are going to reject what you say. And then you have to realize that while you're sowing good seed, Satan's going to be sowing tares among the wheat, false believers, false Christians. So he really is preparing them for the 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 many things that they're going to face when they go out to evangelize. There's going to be rejection. He has told them uh, on a number of occasions people are going to hate them. In John's gospel, he says to them, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. They may throw you in prison. They may take your life. You're going to have to expect rejection, hostility when you go out to evangelize. And he, interestingly enough, tells them that some of this rejection and some of this hostility is going to come within, within Christianity. Christianity will get very big. It'll be like a mustard seed that grows into a huge tree. It's going to be so huge, such a huge thing that birds can actually build their nests in that. He's simply saying that the organized church, the visible church, is going to be huge. It's going to be large. It's going to be like a dragnet. It'll wrap up a whole bunch of stuff. You'll pull it all in, but you'll have to sort the true from the false. So you're going to be a part of a big organization. Christianity will flourish into some big kind of structure, some some sort of earthly domain that's very large. But some persecution, some hostility and unbelief will exist within that. And that's certainly true today, isn't it? We often think that the greatest enemies the Christian faith has are the people who call themselves Christians. And and want to advocate non-Christian things. We have within Christianity today people who advocate uh, abortion, people who advocate homosexual lifestyle, homosexual marriage, homosexual clergy. Uh, You have people within the framework of Christianity who don't believe the Bible is the word of God. They don't believe Jesus Christ was God. They don't believe in the Trinity, and they call themselves Christians, amazingly enough. So Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 13 to his disciples, you can expect all kinds of things. You're going to go out... You're going to have some people literally reject You're going to have some people make an emotional response that doesn't last You're going to have some people make a response to Christ But the love of the world is going to invalidate that superficial thing You're going to have false Christians being sown all over the place In the middle of true Christians You're going to have Christianity become this huge thing That's so big it will encompass true and false And every single thing in between And so you have to be very alert to this It will be a mixed bag And you need to know that. Anytime you go out in any kind of evangelistic effort, you need to be able to expect the fact some people are going to flatly refuse what you say. Some people are going to make an emotional response to it that doesn't last because it wasn't real. Other people are going to make some kind of response and then when they take a look at the cost of it and they look at the things in the world that they've loved all their life and say, I don't want Christ after all, I want what I want. Some people are going to move into a church. You're going to run into them. They're going to say, I'm I'm a Christian. I go to church and so forth. And you'll find out their faith is not real. You're going to find the whole shooting match out there. To help you a little bit to face that, and I think even to help the disciples, there's an interesting record given at the end of Matthew chapter 13. I want you to look at it with me. Look at verse 53. Let me read just the last part of the chapter. It came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in the synagogue, so that they became astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Here we come. Face to face with unbelief. Now, there are a lot of things we could talk about, but I want to talk about unbelief this morning. As you go out to share Christ next week, as you go any time in your life to communicate Christ and you, you share the gospel with people, you're going to run into unbelief. And I want to see if I can't give you a little bit of understanding, as the Lord does here, of how you deal with that. Now, first of all, I want to note that unbelief is a powerful force, okay? We talk about the power of faith. If you had the faith of a grain of mustard seed, Jesus said you could move a mountain. But unbelief is powerful as well. Eve, for example, failed to believe God and the whole human race fell. That's pretty powerful. The world failed to believe God's word through Noah and was drowned. Israel refused to believe God and was left to wander 40 years in the wilderness and eventually be scattered throughout the earth to suffer for centuries Pharaoh refused to believe God's word through Moses lost his slaves his son his whole army Moses refused to believe God and it cost him the long-awaited promised land Aaron refused to believe God about true worship It cost him the lives of 3,000 Israelites Achan refused to believe the word of God and was killed with his whole family Nebuchadnezzar rejected God's word and became a raving maniac. Sennacherib blasphemed God's word in unbelief and was assassinated by his sons after an angel had slain 185,000 of his soldiers. The rich young ruler refused to believe in the words of Jesus and was damned to hell. The Pharisees refused to believe and would die in their sins damned forever. Many disciples who once followed Jesus refused to believe Christ's words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and walked no more with him and walked away into judgment. You come into the book of Acts, you have Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, those leaders who refused to believe the gospel preached by Paul and also were lost forever. And on and on it goes. Unbelief is a very powerful thing. It damns the soul. It brings the judgment of God And yet it is commonplace, absolutely commonplace. We run into it all the time. And as we look at these verses, verses 53 to 58, we get an insight into unbelief and how it works. And I want you to grab onto this because I think it's really very, very important. Verse 53, let's kind of flow through this text. It came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. From where? The town of Capernaum. He'd been there for a long time. That's just a historical note. That little town of Capernaum on the uh, Sea of Galilee. And as he left Capernaum, it was kind of a significant moment because he was leaving and he marked a crisis in the town's history. Uh, Jesus had made Capernaum a center of activity for his ministry in Galilee and now he was leaving and from now on it was only occasionally that he ever visited that place and only in passing, in a sense, he sort of wrote it off. The growing power of the Pharisees' opposition, the nearness of the residence of Herod, in Tiberius made a permanent stay there impossible so in a sense the Lord left and left permanently and by the way back in chapter 11 he had pronounced a judgment on Capernaum and said you're doomed now when he left he went back to Nazareth that's fascinating he says in verse 54 he went to his hometown That's where he had grown up. And he went right back to Nazareth for one more attempt to reach the people in his own town. He had opened his Galilean ministry in Nazareth about a year earlier. And you remember the story about that. If you have the time, you can take your Bible and read the fourth chapter of Luke. Jesus started his ministry in Nazareth, and he got up in the synagogue, remember, and he read out of Isaiah 61, and he said, This is the day that's fulfilled in your ears. In other words, it talked about the Messiah, and he said, I'm the Messiah, I'm here, here I stand, and of course they were absolutely furious with him, and they tried to kill him. And so he left. There it was in his own hometown. He tried to preach the truth about himself. And their response was just unbelievable. And now he comes back a year later. Right back into his own town. In verse 54 it says and coming to his hometown he began teaching them in their synagogue it's the first time he ever taught in a synagogue he goes right into the synagogue and he sets down uh, because the teacher always was seated they would usually stand to read the scripture then sit down to teach it so he takes his seat and he teaches them now it says in verse 54 they were astonished I mean his teaching was absolutely astounding What was it like? Well, if you go through the New Testament, you'll find his teaching was authoritative. His teaching was profound. In other words, it was knowledgeable. His teaching was gracious. There was a gentleness and a meekness and a humility to it. His teaching was powerful. It was forceful. It was logically compelling. And it was absolutely unique. They even said nobody's ever taught like this man teaches. It was profound. It was supernatural. It was logical. It was compelling. It was dramatic. And he sat and taught. But what was their response? Verse 58. Unbelief. Now, I want you to know something else, that in the years since he'd been there, he had been traveling around healing everybody of all their diseases, and the people in Nazareth knew it. They knew that. Because in verse 54, at the end, they said, where did he get these miraculous powers? They knew he could heal the sick and raise the dead. They knew he, for all intents and purposes, banished disease from the whole region. They knew he had power over demons to cast them out. The word about that had gone like wildfire everywhere. And they knew his wisdom was absolutely without equal. They knew his wisdom was not explainable on a human level. He was wiser than any human being they had ever heard of. And so his words and his works were astounding. And they got a little taste of it in the synagogue that day. But the amazing thing is, get this, here is Jesus Christ. Are you ready for this? The most powerful, logical, reasonable, convincing, astute, dynamic, dramatic teacher who ever spoke. And he spoke... And they didn't believe him. And not only was he the most compelling speaker that ever spoke, but he had the track record of all these miracles which he had done, healing people, raising the dead, casting out demons, and doing it to everybody all the time. And still, it says, they didn't believe. Amazing. Now, I just want to let you know that, uh, unless you might think that when you go out and preach, everybody's going to fall down and believe you. You can't do miracles, and you can't preach like Jesus. So you've got to get ready for a response that's not unlike the one he got. You're going to face unbelief. You're going to face rejection. You're going to go out and you're going to give a faithful uh, presentation of the gospel, and somebody's going to step on it, as it were, and just walk over you and have absolutely no interest. You're going to have people who might be hostile to you, but you will have unbelief that's the way it is but i think it might be helpful for you to know how unbelief functions so let me take you into a little analysis of this text and show you what typically unbelief does here's how unbelievers act i want you to watch this i'll give you a handful of points number one the first thing that unbelief does is blur the obvious unbelief blurs the obvious look at this in verse fifty four is this unbelievable It says, he began teaching them. They already knew about his miracle powers and his wisdom. They were absolutely astonished. And listen to what they said. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? What? Where did he get them? Take a wild guess. What do you mean, where did he get them? This is one of the most unbelievable, willful blurrings of the obvious in all of the ministry of Christ. Nobody denied his miracles. Do you know that the Pharisees never denied his miracles? The Jewish leaders, Sadducees never denied his miracles? The priests never denied his miracles? The scribes never denied his miracles? In fact, the officers came into the temple one day in John chapter 7, and they said, Never did a man speak like this man. They never denied the tremendous power of his teaching either. They couldn't deny them. They couldn't deny that he healed the sick and raised the dead and cast out demons because he did it every day all over the place. It was utterly undeniable. I mean, the leading teacher of the Jews at that time was a man named Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night to affirm the fact that nobody had ever done or said what Jesus said or did. His works are so many that even what you read in the New Testament doesn't even begin to tell you. And John says at the end of the gospel that all the books in the world couldn't contain the things that he did. Imagine. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Some would even say that everybody who was ill in all of Palestine got healed. And we're talking, we're talking about people with no legs getting a leg, and people with no eyes getting eyes, and people with, with organs missing getting organs, and we're talking about some significant healings. Dead people coming out of the grave. Nobody ever denied that. The Jews never denied it. They couldn't deny it. It was impossible to deny. Back in Matthew chapter 4, Verse 23, Jesus was going about all Galilee, teaching in synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went into all Syria. They brought to him all that were ill, various diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed all of them. I mean, everybody knew this. He couldn't deny it. And to add to his works, his incredible words... He was so wise. He taught about regeneration. He taught about worship. He taught about salvation. He taught about sin. He taught about evangelism. He taught about judgment, heaven, hell, rejection. He taught about fasting. He taught about prayer, giving, marriage, divorce, murder, hate, anger. He taught about retaliation, vengeance, adultery. He taught about lying, swearing. He taught about loving God, loving men, and even loving enemies. He about, taught about money, taught about possessions, he taught about false doctrine, false teachers, taught about the Sabbath, taught about the law, obedience, discipleship, forgiveness, blasphemy, taught about signs and wonders, taught about parables about the kingdom, taught about life, death, tradition, humility, persecution, I mean, on and on and on. Election, grace, service, children, the end of the world, you name it, he taught about it. And you know what? He never quoted a rabbi. Never. And then his works turned water into wine and healed a nobleman's son, controlled the fish, healed a demoniac, healed Peter's mother-in-law, healed a paralytic, healed an impotent man, a man with a withered hand, a centurion servant, the son of the widow of Nain, he raised from the dead, healed a blind and dumb demoniac, stilled the storm, healed two demoniacs, healed a woman with an issue of blood, then healed the daughter of Jairus, then healed two blind men, and then a dumb demoniac again, fed 5,000, walked on water, Healed the Syrophoenician's daughter, healed the deaf, dumb man, fed the 4,000, healed a blind man, healed a demoniac boy, a shekel in a fish's mouth so he could pay his taxes, healed a blind man, a woman with an infirmity, uh, another man who had dropsy, raised Lazarus from the dead, cured ten lepers, healed Bartimaeus, the blind man, cursed a fig tree, and put Malchus' ear back on his head. And those are just a few of the thousands and thousands of things he did. Nobody denied it. And so what do these people say? They blur what is obvious. What kind of a stupid question is this? Where did this man get this wisdom and these powers? Where do you think he got them? You don't buy these. You don't get them from going to school somewhere. Instead of making an obvious connection, he must be from God, because only God knows all this, and only God can do all this. They ask a stupid question. Where did he get the power to do this? That's just willful unbelief. And that's what unbelief will do. It will always blur what is obvious. It will always blur what is obvious. You say, why does it do that? Here's the key. You know why unbelief does that? Because men love, you tell me, darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They love their sin. They love their sin. They ask the stupid question, Where did he get the ability to do this? It's obvious where he got the ability. From God. But they loved their sin. You see, now listen, young people, this is so important. The problem is not a lack of proof. You understand that? We don't lack proof that Jesus was the Messiah. I just give somebody a Bible. There's plenty of proof. We don't lack proof... A young man came to me two Sunday nights ago, and he says, I'm, I'm very involved in the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I want you to prove to me Jesus is God after Sunday night service. I want you to prove to me Jesus is God. I said, well, I said, I want you to take your Bible. He had a New World Translation, and I want you to read the Gospel of John. When you're done with the Gospel of John, you can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you come to your own conclusion. I don't have to prove Jesus is God to you. You've got to read the Word of God and come to the obvious conclusion. Now, if you choose not to come to that conclusion, it's because it's willful unbelief and you're blurring what is obvious because you love your sin. Now, that makes people think. We don't need more proof. This isn't really an apologetics issue. In Luke 16, 31, Jesus said, If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't believe, though somebody got raised from the dead. You hear the people in the third wave running around today saying, if we want to convince the pagan world the gospel is true, we've got to raise the dead. They're not going to believe even if you raise the dead. Jesus raised the dead. They didn't believe. They're not going to believe because of signs and wonders. There are signs and wonders in the life of Jesus. They killed him. There were signs and wonders in the ministry of the apostles. They made martyrs out of them. That doesn't make people believe. It isn't lack of proof. It is unbelief that is rooted in the love of sin. You understand that? And only the Holy Spirit can break that, can shatter that. So, if if you've done your best to show somebody why Jesus is God and why He's the Son of God and why He came to to die and to rise again, and you've gone all over that and they ask you some stupid question, you have to realize that they are doing what unbelief always does. They They are diverting themselves and blurring what is obvious. Second thing they do. Unbelief will always build up the irrelevant. Unbelief will build up the irrelevant. They'll move to something that doesn't matter. Verse 55. This is, again, what a ridiculous response. This is what they say. Is not this the carpenter's son? Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, what does it have to do with anything that he has a father who's a carpenter? That doesn't have anything to do. It would be like saying, oh, isn't he the son of a guy with brown hair? And then they say, isn't his mother called Mary? And doesn't he have brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? That's not Iscariot. That was a common name. And doesn't he have sisters? And don't they all live around here? Where then did this man get all these things? Well, this is absolutely irrelevant. Absolutely irrelevant. What they're saying is, I don't know if I can accept what you say because your father was a carpenter. What? I, I'm sorry, I don't know if I can accept what you're saying because your mother's name is Mary. And you've got brothers and sisters. And they live around here. What? See how absolutely stupid that response is. They never deal with the issue of his claims and his words and his works. They're, they're really saying this. He, he, he's a common man. He, he's too common. He's too common. So they're saying because he's so common, there's something terribly wrong with him. They're they're completely askew from the issue. They ignored his words, they ignored his works, and they disqualified him because he was too common. He's a carpenter's child. By the way, that word for carpenter in the Greek means basically somebody who works with hard things, could be even stones could be somebody who made plows or yokes or doors or windows or whatever. Some even think it had a mason concept where you're stacking rocks. He's just a common laborer. And Jesus no doubt took over his father's work. And he worked in the carpenter shop and he made plows and yokes for oxen. And he, he may have laid bricks and built houses and put roofs on them and built windows and door jams and doors. He's common enough. By the way, isn't it interesting that Mary here is spoken of as his mother, and it notes for us that Mary also gave birth to four boys and some girls as well. The Catholic Church has for years said Mary was a perpetual virgin, and she was a virgin when she had Christ and never bore any other children, and that's totally contrary to what explicitly is stated here in the Scriptures. She had a whole bunch of children of which Jesus was the virgin-born firstborn, And so they say, look, this guy can't have anything special. After all, he's just a local yokel. This amazes me, but this is typical, right? You go to someone and you present the whole gospel and this will be their response. Well, I heard this preacher one time and he was really too boring. Or, you know, I used to go to church, and it was really boring. And then the, the preacher ran off with the church secretary, and they're not any better than anybody else. I went to church one time, and I didn't like the music. And I went to church one time, and people weren't very friendly. Nobody talked to me. Yeah, I remember the usher at the church sat me in a bad seat. I went to church one time, and the pew was too hard. I'll tell you what, I've been to church too many hypocrites. Have you heard that one? Too many hypocrites. I know some Christians. They're not so hot. I know about them. I used to have some friends who are Christians. Boy, you ought to see what they do on the weekend. See, unbelief will always find some other issue to attach itself to. Why? Because an unbeliever, listen carefully, has to justify his unbelief and he does it in some some obtuse, off-the-subject way. So when you're, you're witnessing to somebody and, and they say, well, you know, I, I've been to church and they're a bunch of hypocrites. That's just diversionary tactics that never deals with the issue. And the way I handle that is to say, well, that's fine. Uh-huh, sure. Well, don't worry about that because there are hypocrites in the church. And if you want to come, there's room for more, you know, So because he's being hypocritical. What you want to say to the person is, that, well, uh, that's fine, but what do you think of Christ? What, what do you think of Christ? That's always the issue. What do you think of Christ? What do you think of Jesus Christ? And usually they'll say, oh, well, you know, I was a a wonderful person. Did you know that he claimed to be God? He did? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he claimed to be God. And did you know that he said if you don't believe in him, you go to hell forever? He did? Yeah. And then you're into what C.S. Lewis said. You can't give Jesus patronizing nonsense that he's a nice teacher. He's either a lunatic or he's Lord of all. We have to focus on Christ. They'll always use diversionary tactics. They want to blur the obvious and they want to build up what's irrelevant. Third thing, unbelief blinds is blind to the truth. In verse 57, they took offense at him. That's unbelievable. They took offense at him, a man who spoke the truth, who banished disease, and they were repulsed. They were offended. It doesn't say they were neutral. It doesn't say they looked at him and thought, well, to think about this. They were offended by him. They were repulsed by him. They were adamantly antagonistic. He scandalized them. They found obstacles to believing in him. Of course, we told you already the love of self, the love of sin, the love of pride, and all of that. They were utterly blinded by their unbelief. You remember Second Corinthians 4 says the God of this world has blinded their minds. And so unbelief blinds to the truth. There's no question about that. And you have to realize that, young people, as you share Christ. Some people are just absolutely blinded by their unbelief. They were. Then a final little note, and we'll wrap it up. Unbelief blocks the supernatural. Unbelief blocks the supernatural. Unbelief blurs the obvious, builds up the irrelevant, blinds to the truth, and then blocks the supernatural. Jesus says in verse 57, a very common little proverb, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. What he is saying is that little proverbial statement, you're only an expert if you're from out of town. They can't accept me because I'm, I'm from their own place. How could I be special? And then he last of all says an unbelief will block the supernatural. Because there was no honor there for him, he didn't do many miracles because of their unbelief. He didn't waste his power on their hard hearts. He didn't heal people there. He didn't raise dead people there because their hearts were so very hard. He wasn't going to cast his pearls before swine. And so he did nothing there. Nothing. Unbelief is a very powerful thing, it can blur what is obvious, it can build up what is irrelevant, it can blind to the truth. It can block the supernatural. Just to bring this into focus in another illustration as I close, look at John 9. I can't resist this because I think it's very instructive. John 9. And this is about the man born blind, you remember? And Jesus heals him. In the first 12 verses, he's marvelously healed. He was born blind. Everybody knew him. I mean, he was common, commonly known to everyone. And he was healed. And it was for the glory of God. Um, he gives his testimony in verse 11 about going to the pool of Siloam after Jesus made clay and anointed his eyes, and he went and washed, and he saw. And he saw. And then you find out what happens in verse 13. The Pharisees brought him in, And it was Sabbath on a day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And again, therefore, the Pharisees were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Then some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. You see how that that is absolutely irrelevant, isn't it? Absolutely irrelevant. They said he can't be from God. He did this on on Saturday. But what does that have to do with anything? But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. And they said again to the man, now, now, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. And the Jews, therefore, didn't believe it. No, they didn't believe it because they're steeped in unbelief. They didn't believe it, that he had been blind. They didn't believe it that he had received sight until they called the parents. They said, we don't think you were ever blind. So they called the parents. The parents come in. Is this your son you say was born blind? Then how does he see? The parents answered and said, we know that this is our son. I mean, we're looking at his face. This is the guy. We know he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's a big boy. He'll tell you. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, to be put out of the synagogue. And for this reason, his parents said, you better ask him. So a second time they called the man in and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They said, We know Jesus is a sinner, so he couldn't have done it. He answered, Therefore, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I used to be blind. Now I can see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You see, they're so steeped in unbelief that they cannot compute what happened. It doesn't register. This is the blindness of unbelief. And they reviled him. Now they're really having a fight. And said, You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he's from. And I love this. The man answered said to him, Well, here is an amazing thing. That you don't know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes. What kind of idiots are you? You're telling me you don't know where he's from. And I'm telling you he opened my eyes. You see, that's unbelief. It literally cannot accept fact. You go in and you present the gospel to somebody who is hard-hearted, whose eyes are blind because Satan has blinded the minds of those who believe not, who love their sin, and you will find that they will not believe the most convincing presentation possible. That's the power of unbelief. It's the power of unbelief you have to expect it and it'll try to divert you into what doesn't matter what is irrelevant obscure what is obvious and deal with non-issues in order to justify itself but in conclusion Jesus also said this when you go out you're going to find soil like that hard and unbelieving but you're also going to find good soil remember that? And as you throw that seed sometimes it's going to hit the good soil and bring forth thirty-fold sixty-fold a hundred fold as Jesus pointed out in the first part of Matthew 13. you have a great challenge but it's no greater and no different than the challenge that Jesus himself had They didn't believe him they didn't believe the apostles they didn't believe the man born blind who got healed and they haven't they didn't believe Isaiah remember God said to Isaiah a few weeks ago we pointed go out nobody's going to listen to you and they didn't believe them they don't they didn't believe Throughout all of redemptive history, in fact, uh, it's very clear in Scripture, Jesus said you killed the prophets and you stoned the people that God sent to tell you the truth. It's always been that way, and it'll continue to be that way, that you're going to confront unbelief. Don't second-guess the power of the gospel. Don't second-guess the reality of Christ. Don't even second-guess your presentation. Just understand the rock-hard nature of willful, sinful unbelief. And the only thing that'll break it is the power of the Holy Spirit right? So when you go, you go prepared in prayer, pleading with the Spirit of God to break the hardness of heart that makes people blur what is obvious and find what is irrelevant and therefore reject the truth. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that we've had this.